As is my custom, I will open up the beginning of this ABF. We're moving on to a section on the Holy Spirit, but more than happy to spend all of our time, if you want, further discussing further questions from this morning or from our series. So I'll open it up, and I'll just restate the question. Dr. Braun. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No. Okay. 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 Fair, fair enough. Um, I'm assuming that when they're gathering together, the reason they're together, the reason they're coming before him and there's other people present is they're doing some sort of ministry or work. So whether or not it's a Sunday morning service, the church is gathering for some function. Um, they don't have buildings at this point. So if they're there, other people are there who are witnessing this, people who carry out her body, the believers have gathered together for some purpose. It's some sort of church event, church function. I mean, I don't, that'd be my assumption. I wouldn't die on that hill. But, but, um, but yeah. But also it seems like they're meeting pretty much day by day. So they're getting together as often, like they're having church as often as they could. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. But I, no, I wouldn't die on that hill at all. Zeb. Oh, restate the question for the tape. Hello, those of you at home. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Can everybody say hi to everyone who's tuning in? Yeah. All right. Some of you just said hi to yourselves. Think through that one. No. Um, the question was, seems Dr. Broad admits this is, this is nitpicking, but fair enough. Um, I said that Ananias and Sapphira were killed during a church service. Yeah, it looks to me as though there was some sort of corporate meeting. Some believers were some reason getting together, but no, it, we don't know if it was their Lord's Day service. Um, they were meeting day by day, house by house, nearly continually. So fair enough. Fair enough point. I'll, I will concede that point and back off it. Other questions or thoughts from this morning or any additional questions? I tried to anticipate some questions, but um, yes. Yes. Right. Yes. The question, Bridget's question is, um, some things are biblical, but they can be taken to extreme measures. Can we talk some more about legalism? I'm glad you asked that because I had a good talk with Mike Doty and he, he asked me some questions and I want to say some more on that. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Um, my, my main point, what I was trying to get across is this. To say that something's legalistic is to say it goes beyond Scripture. And... Paul warns in Colossians 2 of, of the types of things that I view, I think we would all view, as legalistic or legalism. And the danger is, because what Mike was saying to me was, look, every church is legalistic. When you go to them, they're not going to say, yeah, we're legalists, and yeah, we made that up. They're going to try to argue from the Bible. The people that say you can't go see movies, or you can never dance, or you can never have drink alcohol, they're going to, they're going to go to Scripture. So it's not, I mean, so saying it's got to be in the Bible doesn't mean much because everyone's going to say, no, my pet doctrine's in the Bible, which is where we've got to then, I think, study what the difference between biblical commands, precepts, patterns, um, wisdom. And, and so, um, okay, let's, let's look at Colossians 2 to begin with. And the issue in Colossae is asceticism, which is a Stoic philosophy which emphasizes harsh treatment of the body 
uh, Stoics and ascetics would um, eat meager, unflavorful food. The, the goal was to tame your body. And so if you ate very little and it was just porridge, and if you did not partake of, of physical pleasures, if, if you did all that, the thought was you can sort of tame the flesh. Again, this is all rooted back in matter, bad, spirit, good, platonic dualism. Um, and so Paul is dealing with this, and he says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, though its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So when somebody starts extrapolating biblical principles and wants to make rules for other people, I, I get really uncomfortable fast. So um, give, give an example of how this type of thing happens. Does the, and this is where we've got to go beyond commands, precepts, principles, and patterns in Scripture. Does the Bible command us to read the Bible? It, it does. Yes. It, let's try that one again. Are we as Christians, ought we, has God said He wants us reading and meditating on His Word? Okay, great. Do, the, do, do some of the Psalms give us a pattern of reading the Bible in the morning? Yes, they do. David says, in the morning, I'll meditate on your Word. Here's a pattern. Now, is that a command? But certainly that's a good thing to do. And then you go and you say, you know, many, many Christians testify to the value and the, the benefit they personally have received in getting up and having a morning quiet time. Is that good advice? Is that good counsel? Sure it is. You take that next step. Since Christians must read the Bible, that's true, at some level, they must interact with the Bible, they must, you know, they must feed on the Bible. And since the Bible gives us a pattern whereby we see David getting up in the morning and, and reading his word, and since so many in the church have testified to the value of having a daily quiet time, we are going to make a rule instituting that everyone at Martinsdale and all Christians everywhere need, must, read their Bibles first thing in the morning. And Paul would say that has an appearance of wisdom. I mean, my logic sort of works but I'm going beyond what is written. And I'm binding people's consciences with things that, that Scripture doesn't bind them with. And so I, that, that, I don't know if that fully answers your question. That's my starting point, is, is frequently what will happen is the argument against movie theaters is this. There are plenty of bad movies. You want to have a good reputation, a good testimony. Someone sees you going to the movie theater. They know you're a Christian. They don't know if you're going to go see the Muppets or the newest rated R, you know, um, it's a terrible movie. And so for the sake of conscience, now that's a fair thing to consider, right? I mean, if I said to somebody, hey, have you ever considered as people see you walk into the movie theater what, what they might think? That's a great question to ask somebody, you know? Um, and some people might say, no, I never, never even thought about that. Well, you might want to. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but to take that next step and say, because we don't need to see movies, 
And because people might make the wrong implications, or you might be tempted to go see the wrong thing, we're going to make a rule of no movies. We're going to make a rule of no movies. And you just cross the line. You've burdened people's consciences with a law and a command that isn't here. Um, so in, in counseling, I've got to I've got to distinguish between these things. So for instance, if I'm dealing with someone, talking to someone who's struggling with pornography, I can, with biblical authority, thus saith the Lord, flee immorality. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 6, right? That's command. It's not a suggestion. And to insist on that is not legalism. Because what my point, the other part, is oftentimes when people start saying the word legalism, it's when they hear a black and white clear it's really when they're, when they're sensing someone's telling them what to do, you know. Um, and so it's like, no, you can't do that. Now, how does one fight against dealing pornography? There's all sorts of ways. You can get internet accountability. You can get rid of your computer. You can find an accountability partner. Which one is right for you? I can't command that. What I can say is you got to do something. I can also add in Matthew 6, you got to be willing to, to deal radically with your sin. And so if what you tried last month didn't cut it, you need to do something more stringent because Jesus, in talking about cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye, he's not literally saying we should do that. His point is we will never get, we can never get too severe in our treatment against sin. So if, if your thought is I'll just, so if you said, yeah, I, I was looking at pornography last week, I'll just try harder. How'd that work out for you? Yeah, that didn't work out very well. Okay, you need to come up with a better plan than that. And I can thus say to the Lord that because you're not fleeing, right? But if you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the computer out in the living room and remember my wife asked me how I'm doing. Now I may not think that's severe enough, but okay, fine, whatever. I, I'd recommend something a little stronger than that because you still have, you know, you, you still have tons of time and she's out of the house and whatever, but whatever, that's cool. And if that works, great. You come back, you know, a couple weeks later, like, you know, it's not work. Okay. And we keep putting options out, but what I can't say is, you must do this particular way of dealing with your sin. Now, biblically, thou must flee immorality. This is the one sin you don't fight, you run. But the specific application is, is, is more now more issues of wisdom and biblical principle, which I can't command to somebody. Does, does that distinction make sense? So, so that, again, is where you've got to start be thinking about where we can speak firmly the Bible says something, and where we have to be more, more. Um, this is this is a bad idea. This is unwise, um, and yeah, I, I don't think good's going to come of this. But I, I've got to constantly be thinking in the back of my mind. We should always be thinking: what can be backed up biblically, and what cannot, um, and, and thus be growing in maturity. Um, you have more with that, or is Bridget, or is, that's kind of a long-winded answer. Does that help at all? But it's, it's pressing things back. Because what's good for me, and let me say one more thing. This gets down to uh, Romans 14 and, and Paul talking about personal convictions. You know, a per, an individual can have a conviction. An individual can say, because I'm tempted by alcohol, I'm not going to drink it. That's my decision. You know, um, I, I, I've, I've gotten drunk once or twice in the past. I don't want to mess with it. So I've, I've just decided to swear it off. Or Paul can say one person observes a day and another person doesn't. Or one person eats meat and one person's a vegetarian. And that's great as long as it's your personal conviction. So legalism does not mean in having your own rules, your own code. Somebody who's, 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 you know, limits things is not legalist. It's when you turn the corner to and you need to as well. And that's where Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, stop burdening the conscience of other people. Stop putting stumbling blocks in front of people. So, so you might have a great 
commitment and a great pattern and a great um, set of principles and convictions that you observe and you get up every morning, read your Bible and you don't drink alcohol and you don't do anything on Sunday because you want to give a day to the Lord except worship service. You won't do any work. Paul says, hey, that's great. It's when we then turn around and, and burden another's conscience with your good thing that the line gets crossed. So we always need to go back and say, okay, show me how this is coming out of Scripture. And our knee-jerk should not be. That's legalism. It should be, can you, can you show me that in the Bible? And then ask good, hard questions. Because when they say, well, you know, whatever the argument, and you've got to give a specific example for me to deal with it, but you start to press it back and you, you, know, you, you help expose, well, I don't think the Bible commands this. Um, if you do, great, and we can study it some more, but I don't, I don't think the Bible commands this. And so my conscience isn't bound by your law. So... Any, any further questions on that issue of legalism? Because uh, Bridget's right, it could be a stickier issue, and Mike Doty was right. Every legalist claims it's biblical. Um, go to Hebrews 5 real fast. Because what I'm telling you, the hard work is the way that you can tell the difference between legalism and not legalism is studying your Bible. <laughs> There's no easy answer. But that is how we grow in maturity. Hebrews 5 tells us how we mature as Christians. And it takes work. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews is frustrated because he wants to go on teaching about Melchizedek, and he recognizes his audience probably having a hard time following along with him. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Now, stack up the characteristics of maturity and immaturity, and notice how he says you move from one to the other, from immaturity to maturity. So first off, they're immature because they're dull of hearing. Um, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. So an immature person is, is, hasn't even understood what they've been taught. A more mature person is able to pass on what they know. For everyone, and you need to um, teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. So immaturity, milk, more maturity, solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So a, a hallmark of immaturity is you don't know your Bible that well. You're becoming more mature. You're knowing your Bible better and better. Now look at this. Verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's actually this very process of holding something up and saying, what does God's Word say about that? What does God's Word say about it? It's that constant practice that actually matures you. So somebody says, I don't think Christians should go to the movie theater. Instead of just going, legalism. No, no, what does God's Word say about that? And working through it. So you can give an answer and say, no, no, I think, I think you've taken an application of a principle and turned it into a law. That, that's, you've gone beyond what's written. And, and Paul warns that even though that has an appearance of wisdom, it's useless in restraining the desires of the flesh. You know, that, that's how you grow in maturity. You've got to work through them. And some of them are tough. And that's another reason why we've got a body. If someone, if somebody hears from somebody else, well, I've heard that Christians never ought to touch alcohol. If, if you lack the skill to work through that biblically, there are others who can help you work through it. And we can, we can figure some of these things out. Um, so that, that's how we deal with, the only way to deal with legalism is to take it to the Word. And what does the Word say? It's the only, it's the only way you can get around it. Um, or no, we can't get around it. It's the only way to get through it. Um, anyone want to, any further questions or say anything on this topic? Yes, Zach. Okay. 
Ah, no, that is absolutely, that is, that is in our wedding packet. Um, that, that is a fair enough question. The question for the tape is, um, Zach, um, not wanting to try, not trying to pick a, an issue, but just give an example, that our wedding packet for our church doesn't permit dancing. And I think the $8 trillion distinction there is for the, someone using the wedding, it's not the church gatherings, the church is to let people use our building. Um, we would be out of bounds to forbid, and I'm not sure in what context, clearly in, in Israel, and clearly at times, people worship the Lord in dance, and we must not forbid it. It's biblical. I'm not entirely sure how we'd factor that into our worship service, but the Lord raises people up who are gifted and, and want to talk to us about that. We must be open to it. And if we forbid, if we were to forbid, make a law, and forbid that in our worshiping of the Lord as the church, we would be going beyond what is written. Unless we could somehow back it up biblically, right? But to use our building, we also have a no alcohol policy for using our building, even though our church certainly does not believe that Christians can't drink. The, the, the issue there is simply one of pragmatics. I'm assuming before my time, people had weddings here where somebody drank too much and it got ugly, or people did some dancing that looked, that looked an awful lot. You know how, when I went to college in LA, they had a no dancing policy. And the reason why is you try to on paper write the difference between what takes place at clubs and like godly, you know, chaste line dancing or swing dancing or whatever. But we all have seen the bumping and grinding that is clearly perverse and clearly um, inappropriate. And when you've got 18-year-old kids and there's LA nightclubs, they just, they, and they said flat out, we're not saying this is unrighteous. We're just saying if you want to come to this college, you're not going clubbing. Fair enough. You don't have to come here, and you don't have to use our building for your wedding. So if we were burdening that on Christians, and, and if we were saying, and Christians should never have dancing at their weddings, we'd be making a law. So I think that may seem like a, 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 a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. We're not saying you shouldn't have dancing at your wedding reception. What we're saying is, if you want to use our building, you can't. And we're not saying Christians shouldn't have alcohol at their wedding receptions. We're just saying, if you want to use our building, you can't. It's problematic. But if we were to forbid that from gatherings or bind people's consciences, that would be a, that would be legalism, absolutely. So that's kind of a distinction we're seeing. Kathy, no, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and what we all have, it, yeah, Kathy said basically um, the, distance, the distinction again between a facility and binding people's conscience is what we should do. And when we gather, we, we aren't free to do whatever we want when we gather. I and mean, there are some things we've got to figure out, right? I mean, is it legalistic that we insist on gathering at nine instead of seven in the morning or noon? There is a certain amount of like figuring some stuff out. The Bible gives us that Christians gather together. Don't forsake the assembling together. And then it leaves us to figure out when, where, and how often we're to get together. And there is a sense in which, as Daniel said last week, you left it with, well, it seems good to us to say 9 o'clock in the morning. You know? Why do we only do communion once a month? You certainly could do it every week. Seems good to us to do it. Well, I mean, we've got our reasons. It's not arbitrary, but like, there's certain things we've got to figure out that we have to figure out in our worship. How many songs do we sing? Why is our service an hour and 15 minutes, not two hours? Yes, I know sometimes it feels like it's two hours. 
and, and there's a certain amount of like freedom, and we just we do the best we can, and we muddle along, right? And we pray, and we seek input, and we okay, let's sort of figure this out. Um, but we're open to reform. If we say no, church services must be at nine o'clock, or it's ungodly, um, or there has to be an hour-long sermon. Then now you're crossing all sorts of lines, crossing all sorts of lines. Um, so, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, yeah, some, some, sorry. Yeah, Elsa's saying the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul clearly, clearly identifies who's right in that issue. And there, you've gotten even a step further. You've got somebody whose conscience is weak. It's not a conviction. In some cases, it's just, you know what? I'm going to choose my family. We're going to honor the Lord on Sunday by devoting it entirely to worship and rest. Now, I don't believe Christians are sinning if they work on Sunday. I don't believe Sunday is the Sabbath. So you can you can talk to me. We can have that discussion. That's fine. I think our Sabbath rest is in Christ, and as long as we're trusting in Him, we're Sabbathing. Which is why I wrote a pastor's pen a few months ago, breaking the Sabbath on Wednesday. Because if you're trusting in your own works on Wednesday, you're not Sabbathing anymore. That's my understanding of. But there are godly Christians who do think the Sabbath command moved to Sunday. Keep in mind, Sabbath is Saturday. Um, and if that's what you think the Bible needs to do, that's what you need to do. Now there, I don't think they're being legalistic. That's what they think the Bible teaches. I don't think the Bible teaches that, which is why I'm not joining with a church that's Sabbatarian. But um, there, there are Christians who, and Paul's saying, look, if that's what you think you need to do to honor God, you certainly need to do it, and don't argue and dispute over it. So one guy's like, basically, the issue with meat sacrifice to idols is they do sacrifices in the pagan temples, and apparently that meat, was discounted, easier to get, whatever. And there's this question of, is it tainted? Because, I mean, how would you, maybe if we found out that the chairs we were buying were used in a Masonic lodge before they came here, are they tainted? I mean, that's the question. It's being, and certain people, through association, I just can't eat it. I can't eat it. It's, 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 it's contaminated. It was used in, in demonic worship in temples. Paul says, hey, dude, I can eat a cheeseburger on an idol's temple. It's just a building. It's just meat. It's no big thing. But hey, if you think it's unclean, don't do it. And don't get in quarrels over it, you know? Love each other. Receive each other. That's Romans 14. Um, and again, this is getting back to pressing my conviction on somebody else. So it's one thing to say, hey, brother, can we open the Bible? I'd love to hear why you think Sunday is the new Sabbath. Great. That's great. I'm not quarreling. I'm saying, let's, let's open the Bible. Let's do a Bible study. I'd love to hear why you think, um, you know, we shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, but not just to argue and look down on each other and certainly not to judge and impose our standards on other people. Um, which is one of the reasons why we have our statement of faith out there. We don't list everything we believe, but we list the major points so that if someone comes here, it's kind of like, hey, this, this is what we believe. You, you know we believe this. This is why we added the marriage amendment so that with such a controversial modern issue, we're just being out for, hey, this is where we're at. Don't be surprised. Don't get upset when you hear this is what we believe. Um, so we don't catch you by surprise, right? Um, any other questions on this? Yes. Right. Right, right, right.
Right. Right. Right. Right. Right. Right. Right. Carol, Carol referenced the tape, um, Paul in First Corinthians 6 and in 10 saying twice, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. I won't be enslaved by anything. So when we're dealing with any activity, is this an enslaving activity? Am I coming under this activity's control? Uh, then that's forbidden. We can't, we're, we're set free. We're not to be putting a yoke of slavery back on. And also the notion of tempting or causing someone else to sin. If I, if I, you know, kick back and, and have a beer in front of somebody who I know struggles with alcohol, according to Paul, I'm tearing down what Christ has built up and I'm not loving my brother. So it's not fundamentally about my rights. I was given rights, if you will, to serve other people. And so it's like, how can I serve? I'm free to serve you. I'm not free to be served. I'm free to serve you. And, and that's how we should be viewing our liberty and our, and our rights. Good, good point. Okay, any, any other questions? Anything else? Going once. Ooh! We only got like 15 minutes left, Zach, so if you want to just take us the rest of the way, go for it. All right. I, I do have my handouts, though, so yes. Okay. First Corinthians 10, 11. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, no, I don't think so. The, the question is about communion and if, if, if as we, as we, change and tighten up how we do membership here with that changed communion. There are churches that have what's called closed communion or another term for it is called guarding the table. Um, and then, and then it's usually Presbyterian churches, although there, there are some Reformed Baptist churches that'll do this. And basically they will only give out the elements, the communion elements to people who are members in good standing. And so if you're a guest, no communion for you. And they, it's called guarding the table. As I read 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord guards the table, and it's another place where you find out people are dying. So we warn people not to take the table inappropriately. But as I understand it, I don't need to guard it because God himself is actively guarding it. Let me, let me read that to you. Um, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11. Whoever therefore, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Just imagine that again. People are dying because they're taking communion cavalierly, flippantly, inappropriately. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But the other things, I'll give direction when I come. 
So the Lord's, there's, that's a pretty severe warning, right? Um, so as I understand it, the Lord is judging his table. The Lord is guarding his table. And I'll be happy to pass the warning on to everyone else. When we stop next week, we'll be taking the Lord's table and we'll pause and say, look, let's take a moment for us to get right. Make sure that we're coming to the table with, with the right hearts, clean consciences. And if you're not a Christian, this, this table is not for you. But at the end of the day, that's your deal. You want to eat and drink judgment on yourself, I will not physically stop you. Um, so, no, I don't think it would change anything, Zach. Any, we would invite anyone to the table to whom the um, sign is true. If you are someone who's come to Christ in faith and are partaking of Christ in faith, then by all means, partake of the sign that indicates that's what you've done. Um, even if you are unknown to us, even if we don't know who you are. Um, absolutely. Yes, Lee. That's a, that's a great practical question. Um, there's two issues. How are we actually going to implement this? And we're going to talk, I'll try not to say too, too much because we're going to talk next week with all the elders. But, but there's two issues, right? There's the issue of how do you deal with the fact that we've got, on a given Sunday, 220 people or so gathering, probably representing, if everyone came at once, 300 or so people, I'd guess. Um, how do you deal with it when most of those people, I think, are in fact functioning as members? They are members. That's why I try to stress getting on some list doesn't magically make you a member. And if, if I could hack the computer and erase somebody, I didn't stop being a member. It's the existence of the relationships. They are functioning as a body. They are rightly related to their brothers and the leadership and everything. Um, the list is simply a helpful tool, we think, to, to, be, to be the biblical value of self-aware. That's why I'm trying to parse this out because where's church membership in the Bible? The end of church membership, which is a knowledge of who we are, is clearly biblical. And I think the Lord leaves it up to us to figure out how we're going to know who we are. If we're an underground church in China, we probably don't need a list. My men's group that I go on a Monday night, don't need a list. I know who goes. Um, and at a certain size, though, they start making lists, and we do have biblical precedent for that. The widow's list. Clearly, they, they had enough widows, because persecution is rising, that they couldn't just know the four widows they had. They made a list. And people get enrolled on the list. And so we have a biblical precedent for record keeping to help us keep aware of who we are. So the biblical value is we need to know who we are. And this is, I'm being long-winded here, but that's nothing new. And um, so you don't get to laugh at that, Michaela. Look, Laura. I know you're not Michaela. Sorry. She's rejoicing in your honesty. She's rejoicing my honesty. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so we got two issues. We got moving forward. How do we matriculate or bring in new people? And how do we deal with the many people who are in fact the body? And, and that's why I was trying to stress. In some cases, we're asking people who haven't committed themselves to the body to do that. In other cases, we're just saying, look, is it okay if we let people know that you've done that? Because what I hear from some people is, well, you should just be able to tell. And that's great if you've been here for five years, but when you've got a new family like the Moors, Jacob and Stacy, wouldn't it be helpful for them to say, hey, here's your new family that you've committed to? And certainly from the position of the leadership, who am I going to give an account for? So it serves a very practical value of knowing that. So for the people who already function that way, we want to make it as easy as possible. I don't want to go up to somebody who's been coming for 20 years and say, are you a believer? Yeah. So we want to make it as easy as possible. And moving forward, I would rather not make this an issue of paperwork and bureaucracy. Um, that's just me. Moving forward, I think it would be a matter of an interview with an elder or, or two, um, 
and just talking and just, hey, is this what you want to do? Is this what you understand you're doing? Is your intention to join yourself here and to come regularly? Are we going to give an account for you? You're going to, you're willing to recognize and follow the leadership of the leaders here? Is that what's going on? Yeah, I want to do that. Great. Do you mind if I let everyone else know by putting you on a list? That's, that's the way I'd say it. Like, hey, do you mind if I tell the rest of the body that that's what's happened? It's not just our little secret. You know what I mean? That's, that's the function of the list is letting it be known. So both ways, so that I know I, I'm responsible for Simeon's faith, and Simeon's responsible for my faith, and, and if he has problems, I'm to weep with him and to walk with him, and, and I need to know who I'm responsible for, and we need to know who we're responsible for. I'm still not really fully answering your question. So moving forward, I'd like it to be conversational. Um, I believe, as the elders are talking, that's, that's where we're on, this, we're on that page. I know what we spent the most time talking about is what to do with the people we have now. And there we've got a couple of options. Conversations one. If, if you're, if this is, if you want to go, go public, um, and say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's my relationship and I'd, I'm cool letting everyone know that. You could just talk to an elder. You could, um, send an email. We're going to have a sign up sheet in the back. I mean, you want to make it as easy as possible. So we're not like going around knocking on doors and, and, you know, and we need to talk to you. Um, we want to make it as easy as possible to recognize the people who already are the body. For the voting roster, yes, yes, it is. It is. You don't have to come to meetings. It's well. Here's the problem: that we've been working under the assumption up to this point that it's just you know who's who, and that's great for say the majority of. But there's there's a number of cases where it's not nearly so clear, and it gets really problematic. Because um, here's what generally happens. When somebody starts to cool off and cool down and pull away and try to reach out to them, and first you try to encourage them, you say, hey, we missed you. Yeah, okay, thanks. But that doesn't seem to work. You start, now, the second you round that corner, and this gets back to what I was saying this morning, legalism, to an exhortation, you, you need to come. The Bible calls you to come. Will you come? Then you can very quickly get this, well, who are you to me? And you don't, you, you're, you don't judge me and tell me what to do. Well, if we've already established clearly, like, hey, we are to look out for you, then you can say, hey, remember that conversation we had three years ago where you said, yes, you're going to keep watching over my soul? Okay, great. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> like, if you found some new church, that's a different deal. But if you're just you and Jesus on your couch, you need to not forsake the assembling. You know what I mean? Um, so, there's in, so generally, that's where really the lack of clarity is problematic, is when you're trying to care for sheep that are walking off, people that need help. And that's where I want to, there are times, Lee, seriously, where I'll see a Christian who's clearly got some problems imploding, and you try to reach out and talk to them, they don't want help, and they don't want help. And you want to, I want to say to them, I'm dead serious, am I going to give an account for you in the day of Christ? Because if not, if the answer is no, then I'll pray for you and I'll love you and I'll leave you alone. But if the answer is yes, I will give an account for you. Then we need to talk. Let me help. No, no, it's none of your business. I don't get, no, no. When, when we entered into that relationship where I'm going to give an account for you, it became my business. Fair enough. Um, and so there's been a couple, a number of circumstances where it's like, it's not entirely clear where we're at. So we thought for a number of reasons, making it public and making it clear would only help everybody. But we want to make that transition as easy as possible so that people aren't caught up in some hoops. I gotta jump through your hoops and you can, you can talk to elders. You can, you can, um, put your name on a list. Not sign your name, write your name on a list. Um, it's not some contract. Um, and just let us know. Yeah, this is, this is our, this is my relationship to this body. Yeah. Count, count me in. Yeah. 
Um, so you got any other suggestions on ways to do it? We'd, we'd be happy to consider those, but the main ways right now would be the, the, the list that we'll put out after the ABF next Sunday and be out for a couple of weeks. Um, conversational, relational, um, an email. We'll, we'll probably in all instances send an email or a piece of mail just to confirm so that somebody doesn't write your name down for you. You know, it's just to be clear, you know, um, and that's it. You're not, it doesn't affect church governance. It doesn't affect anything in regards to the quorum and how the church is governed in that sense. It's simply a tool, in some senses, no different from our existing tools, our photo directory, our other directories, except here's one they're actually going to try to make accurate um, and, and for, for that use. And you want to, we got some elders in here. Greg, you want to add anything to that or we want to wait till next week? Anything? I didn't. Fair enough. Okay. Any other questions? We got five minutes. We're not going to do this handout for five minutes. Wouldn't even get a hand to doubt. No more questions. Okay then. Literally. Oh, it's Christian related. Okay. He's like, he's like, what happened on the last episode of? I missed it. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm a Christian, Jeremy. I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> That'd be legalism, wouldn't it? There we go. Okay. Uh, Jeremy, yeah. Person. Yes. We covered this on that sheet, didn't we? Who wants to give Jeremy an answer? See, this is the test. Final exam time, folks. Pull out your little sheet. What? Um, one of the heresies. Okay. So, no, for the record, that's good. Jeremy was reading something I or somebody posted on Facebook about common heresies, bad doctrine Christians today believe, and one of them is over the issue of is the Holy Spirit a person or just some sort of spirit spirit force. What's the answer? Is the Holy Spirit a person? Yes. Yes. Can someone back that up with a text? First uh, Corinthians two ten through eleven. Let's go there. Good job, class. No, the Jehovah Witness, and I think even the Mormons as well, also think it's just an impersonal spirit. Um, we believe the Holy Spirit is a person. And let me get the handout. You'll see the. You'll see that's the very first thing we. This is why we started where we started. Here you go. The Holy Spirit is a person. Look at that. Okay. Um, he's a plant, folks. He's a plant. Um, Hillary? Oh, sorry. Ooh, okay. On that awesome note. Uh, actually, actually, the, the first Corinthians reference, oh, let's go there, sure. We do go through, we go through, okay. First Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. The Holy Spirit has a mind. These things God has revealed through us through the Spirit, 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God comprehends as thinking language. The Holy Spirit can comprehend God's thought. Um, if you look up on that sheet I gave you, John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that is said. And Jesus actually uses bad grammar here because the he in Spanish, in, not Spanish, in Greek, should agree in, in subject, number, and gender. For lang- If you guys have ever taken a language of gender, like Spanish, masculine, feminine words, the pronoun should be of the same gender as the word it represents. So if you've got a masculine word, it's masculine. Well, Greek has three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And pneumatos, um, if we get like pneumatic air power drill, because the word for spirit can also mean air or breath. Pneumatos is a um, neuter gender word. So you'd expect the pronoun to represent spirit would be neuter, translated it. That's, that's our English representation for a neuter gender. Jesus says he. The, the pronoun and the word it represents don't agree. He's emphatically making the point the spirit is a he. Um, and so that, that's probably one of the strongest arguments because there's no way he's, it's not accidental. It has to be intentional. Um, and so he says, he will teach you all the things, bring remembrance, all that has been said. And we looked at how the spirit has an emotional life. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. So he thinks and he feels and he has will. We read, um, 1 Corinthians 12. Let's go there quickly and we'll end our time. Um, and we'll just pick this up next week. Well, no, we won't next week. There's a joint ABF. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Speaking about the distribution of the, whole, of the spiritual gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit has a mind. The Spirit has an emotional life. And he has purpose and will. And when Ananias and Sapphira, before they're struck dead, Peter says, You've lied to the Spirit of God. You have not lied to man, but to God. He can be lied to. And they get judged for that by the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit, this, this is a perfect tie-in, Jeremy. It's a perfect tie-in. Well done. Well, I think that my, my confusion maybe is more with the question than with the... There's not any... I don't have any yeah. doubt about whether he was set yeah. yeah. or whether he was self-thinking... Right, right. No, no, the Holy Spirit does not have a body. Um, right, no. And, and honestly, and I'm glad we're on this subject of the Holy Spirit because um, and as we go through this in this class, frequently in a reaction against some of the excess, okay, what you generally have in the church is you have those churches that make much of the Holy Spirit um, and, to, and many of them to degrees that I think go beyond Scripture. And, and then you get the sort of the reaction against that where you talk about the Holy Spirit as little as possible. You know? And we, we want to do neither. On the one hand, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity who gets the least camera attention. And we see that his ministry is primarily to point the lights at Jesus and the Father. The Spirit will come and he will not speak on his own accord. He'll speak what has been given to him. And he will glorify the Son. You get the impression the Holy Spirit's functionally is wanting the glory, wanting to point everyone towards the Son and the Father. But he is God. 
And so, in the one hand, it, it, it makes sense that he gets the least amount of attention in Scripture. He still gets plenty of attention in Scripture. Just when you compare him to God the Father and the Son, he's, he's getting the least um, um, amount of text directed towards him. But we don't want to either elevate him and, and start worshiping the Spirit above the Father and the Son, nor do we want to ignore the Spirit in our worship. And so on that note, we'll pick this back up in two weeks, um, and we'll see you then. God bless.